The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. How is your work life going? Business, home, social? How about your health? Could you make some changes? Of course you could, but how and where to start? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. In this program, we'll help you identify and make the changes in your life that need to be made. And by doing so, increase your potential for success. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi. Today's episode focuses on both leadership and social change. Just as we do in our personal lives, as leaders, we face issues we may feel ill-equipped to deal with. These issues may even be considered by some to be taboo, like tobacco use and sexual violence. Our conversation will provide resources and strategies for you to address both of these leadership challenges in your personal life and your work. We're fortunate to have two leadership and social change experts with us to guide you in navigating these realities. Sarah Boryu joins us virtually from Boston, where she lives with her partner and two small children. She's the founder of the Enliven Project, which seeks to bring sexual violence out of the closet and lift survivors to their full potential. Sarah's also an advisor to leaders and nonprofits. Peter Pritchard is with me live in New York City. He's a youth advocate, leadership consultant, and coach, writer, and public speaker. Peter's professional mission includes decreasing instances of sexual assault on young people and use of tobacco products by youth. He also seeks to provide resources that help the public to lead peak-performing lives, have positive relationships, and contribute to a healthy world. Sarah, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to you first. Thank you so much for joining us virtually from Boston to contribute your expertise to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we'll look forward to hearing more from you shortly. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming in from Jersey to be here bright and early today. (laughs) Thank you, Hamda. It's great being here. Great to have both of you. Peter and Sarah will share how they integrated their personal experiences around these taboo topics to incorporate social change in their work as leadership experts. We're going to hear from Peter first. Thank you, Hemda. Um, I would like to start uh, with a quote from Mark Twain, uh, American writer and philosopher, uh, where he said, the two most important days of your life are when you're born and when you find out why. And I've spent my whole career uh, helping thousands of individuals figure out why they are are on this earth and and what they want to do about that. And I'm going to present a number of of, um, tools and ideas uh, for the listeners regarding um, these topics. And the first tool I'm going to talk to is, is really the idea of creating uh, and writing down your lifeline. Uh, and what that means is sitting down with a piece of paper and, and, and really writing what are the key events in your life? Who are the key people that impacted you? What were the things that, that shaped you uh, as an individual? And people of any age can do this. 
And I'm going to use uh, a couple examples from my lifeline that tied directly into the, the subject of this, this conversation today. Um, in terms of, of my lifeline and how it relates to the, the work that we're talking about in this conversation, um, my parents divorced when I was six years old. And when I was 10 years old, uh, a teacher in the school I was in really impacted my life. She cared about me. She knew that I was blaming myself for their divorce. And so one of the first lessons I got from uh, my lifeline was the importance of helping and being there for people when they need it, just as uh, Miss Nesbitt was there for me. Um, the second uh, key factor that came out of my lifeline was when my, when my parent, my father remarried. My stepmother had a philosophy uh, which changed my life. Her philosophy was can't never did a thing. Um, her feeling was bad stuff happens to people, like the divorce, like her divorce, and um, you can either choose to um, lessen yourself as a person by that or you can choose to move forward from it. So the idea that can't never did a thing really brought forth to me as a young person um, the fact that um, you can your mental condition and your mental reaction to the bad stuff that happens to you can can impact you um, and move you forward in a very positive way. Um, I mentioned the the lifeline because um, self awareness and and an understanding of those things that have shaped you uh, have made you the person you are are critical for leaders to know uh, in terms of the idea of telling the truth. Um, and impacting people in a real and powerful way um, and um, giving uh, credence to who you are and those things that impacted you is important. And that, that concept has been supported by the significant research and popularity of Dan Goleman's work on emotional intelligence um, where he uh, provides very specific data around the fact that people that are more self-aware uh, have a better understanding of why they do what they do, are more effective as leaders. The research that he did, um, and this is, again, a third, a second tool for you, Goleman's work, um, his book, Emotional Intelligence, and particularly working with emotional intelligence. Very, very powerful work. And the research showed that 60% of the effectiveness of leaders and individuals are emotional components. They are not technical expertise or IQ. And so the importance of self-awareness is, um, is statistically shown as important, and it certainly is shown um, by results. Uh, so the idea of creating a lifeline and answering the question, how, how am I shaped, who am I, why am I doing what I'm doing, uh, is very important. Uh, in terms of my lifeline and my work and the conversation we're having today, both my parents died from tobacco uh, use. My father when I was 23, my mother when I was 35. My two sons, who are in their 30s, never knew my parents, uh, and it was because of tobacco products. I started to research the tobacco industry when I was 23 and my father had died, and what I came up with, and it's on the website I've created, um, makebigtobaccounprofitable.com, um, is the fact that the tobacco industry has been misrepresenting and fighting every chance they can um, to keep their uh, lethal products um, in the hands of young people. 
the majority of the large majority of people who are cigarette smokers are people who started smoking before they're 18. So when I was 23, part of my mission in life became uh, doing whatever I could to impact uh, and change the smoking habits of young people. Um, because if you start smoking before then, um, you're, you are likely to um, uh, smoke for the rest of your life. And um, I would unfortunately have to say that um, almost everyone who is listening to this program probably knows, uh, knows either a family member or somebody they're close to who has died from um, the use of tobacco products. So in our conversation today, um, not only am I going to provide you um, with uh, suggestions in terms of how to get a sense of how you might move forward, as I've tried to start to suggest just now, in terms of creating a timeline, um, but also what you can do as a leader and as an individual um, to uh, lessen tobacco smoking uh, and the use of other tobacco products uh, by young people. If the tobacco companies do not get young people before they're 18, they're probably not going to get them. And so they do everything they can. For those of you who have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, young friends or whatever, they are targeting those young people um, so that they can make their profits, um, which makes me crazy and is just amoral at best. The final point I want to make uh, before we segue to, to uh, my friend and colleague Sarah um, is if the idea of a lifeline is a little uh, uh, doesn't resonate with you, uh, another one that that uh, works, another tool that works is uh, write your own obituary. Uh, some people get put off by that idea, um, but sitting down, how do you want to remember be remembered when you pass from this earth? How do you want to remember be remembered as an individual? And I've had dozens of people who wrote their own obituary and came back and met with me as their coach. And it was transformative for them because it was really the first time they had really given any thought to how do I want to be remembered, what is my legacy, and what are the things that I could be doing um, in terms of um, moving in that particular direction. And so when we talk about, you know, tell the truth about your life, your organization, and your world, that self-awareness that Goldman has done significant research and writing about um, becomes uh, centrally important. Uh, in terms of your being able to move ahead. Thank you, Peter. I love what you're bringing out in terms of creating a lifeline, taking a look and stock of the experiences that have shaped you in your life, and also the personal experiences that have been difficult that you can really elevate through by translating them into your own personal and professional mission. In addition to the exercise that you shared about creating an obituary, really helping us to connect with what's meaningful in our lives, and what we want to really invest in in the time that we have. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sarah, I'd love to invite you to share how you've connected your personal experiences with your professional roles in social change organizations. <clears throat> yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, for me, my work is really grounded in this belief that unless and until you tell the truth about yourself and your life, you can't tell the truth about what's happening inside your organization, inside of the social, social issue that you care about, uh, and it really limits you in terms of taking action. And, and for me, that journey started when I was 11 years old. Um, when I was 11, I was out uh, in Oregon visiting my grandparents on a, on a family vacation. Um, and, and that night, uh, at the beginning of the trip, 
I told my mother that my grandparents had molested me. And it wasn't the first time that it had happened, and it actually would not be the last, um, but it was the first time that I told the truth about it. And that moment, for me, uh, it changed my life, and it changed my family. Um, I didn't know at the time, but I had I broke through about two generations of silence on the issue of sexual violence um, as an 11-year-old. And, and that, that power of truth-telling... Uh, drove me forward and really carried me through some difficult times in high school and college. And, and my experience and journey as a survivor was never something that was really secret. Um, and, and it was always something that I was willing to talk to people about. In fact, when I was in college, one of my primary reasons for speaking at our campuses, Take Back the Night, um, demonstration was so that I wouldn't have to tell people that I was dating, that I was a survivor of sexual violence. So I, you know, I, it, it was something that I was, I was always fairly open about, but once I graduated from college, I started a professional uh, career path in uh, fundraising and nonprofits. And, it, and the topic never came up. So it wasn't something, it wasn't something that I found myself getting into conversations with about my colleagues, with my colleagues or with the clients that I was working with or with the, the faculty members or the nonprofit leaders that I was um, helping. And, and so I went on and it was probably about a, a decade in um, when I jo- finally joined the board of a rape crisis center in Boston that I, that I realized I had these two parallel experiences in my life. I had this this uh, growing professional reputation and network and, and career path in the nonprofit sector. And then I had this experience as a sexual violence survivor and the, the ways in which that impacted my life, my perspective on the world, um, and that I wasn't actually, and I hadn't integrated the two. And so, so that was an aha moment for me where I realized that I actually wasn't bringing this core commitment to truth-telling into this professional space that I now occupied. And by doing so, I was doing a disservice not only to myself, but to the many other survivors of sexual violence who were also not being given a voice in those professional environments. Um, and so, so I just started talking about it. You know, I, I, and my segue in was typically that I was on the board of the Rape Crisis Center, that, I, um, that this was an issue that was really important to me, and it was important to me because it had happened to me. And what was incredible to me is that, that simply by doing that, it started to open up a, a new career path for me. And it empowered me to really support leaders in a different way because I was demonstrating the ability to be brave, the ability to tell the truth about something that was taboo, that was not talked about. Um, and what that did in, in return was, was open up the door for them to share what was really going on with them. Um, what was important in their lives, the, the ways in which they have, may have been touched by taboo issues, whether sexual violence or mental health issues or substance abuse or addiction, um, and how that drove their commitment to what they were doing, which, uh, which was otherwise a part of their story and their personal mission that was being left out. Mm-hmm. I love how you connected with your strength through truth-telling, that essentially that was a strength that, that you have it was a strength that you demonstrated telling the truth. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that, that that commitment um, to truth-telling and really just witnessing how, it, how when I tell the truth about myself, it creates a space for, for somebody else to share the truth about what's happening in their life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then you can start having a conversation about about what's happening inside of my organization and how might other people be impacted by things we're not talking about. Um, and seeing and seeing those ripple effects, and particularly with the with the issue of sexual violence, which you know I I work on through the Enliven Project. The Enliven Project is essentially a, a series of truth telling conversations through social media and blogging and writing about how you bring this issue into spaces where it's currently not being discussed, um, and seeing the ripple effects of what happens from doing that. Mm-hmm. Sarah, what would you say to people who have a concern about being judged by telling the truth or being hurt in some way or experiencing some kind of negative reaction? I mean, I would say that the best antidote to shame is light, right? And so, you know, that, that, the, that the, fear, the fear of being shamed and the fear of the stigma is what's holding all of us back. And so I think it's these, you know, my commitment around the Enliven Project is that it should not require an act of bravery to, t- to tell the truth about your life, particularly about the issue of sexual violence. Um, and that there are so many, not just survivors, but allies, friends, parents, siblings, partners to survivors who are really just waiting for a space to, to talk about the story. I think that there will always be people who will judge you. Um, there will always be people who will not be acting out of the best of their humanity. Um, but we can't live our, we can't live our lives, lives expecting the worst out of people. And so I think by taking that little leap, and, and, I, and I do it so that other people, so it doesn't feel as scary for other people. Mm-hmm. Well, you're an excellent example of what you stand to gain as opposed to what you stand to lose by telling the truth. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it sounds like you and Peter both emphasize some really core points that when you integrate the personal life experiences you have into your work experiences, that it creates kind of a domino effect. It's empowering for you to be able to share your voice that way. And then it opens up avenues for other people as well, regardless of what the taboo reality is to be able to share things that have been difficult for them. Yes. Great. Thank you both so much. We're going to take two for a quick commercial. When we come back, Peter and Sarah will offer examples of how they've helped leaders to address sexual violence and other challenges. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Imagine you hired a designer to redo your kitchen. Working with an expert to meet your needs was such a high. You're enjoying the new feature so much that you're waking up early to write the book that's been in your head for five years. The raised Caesar stone countertop and cushioned back stool are your writer's desk. With this comes the realization that all of the rooms in your home need to be redone to match the level of your kitchen. This scenario demonstrates my approach to executive and lifestyle coaching. It involves understanding what compatibility means to you at different times in relationships, career, nutrition, and other quality of life areas. It's also about elevating your game personally and professionally. 
Given my multidisciplinary expertise, we can address a range of needs that are critical to your fulfillment and success. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, Managing Director of Life and Career Choices, a global executive coaching and concierge practice. Learn more about my services and contact me through lifeandcareerchoices.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. Welcome back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, joined by leadership and social change experts Sarah Beaulieu and Peter Pritchard. Sarah shared an inspirational story about how she connected her experiences as a survival of sexual violence with her professional roles in change organizations. Peter talked about how he's integrated his commitment to addressing sexual violence and tobacco use in his work as a leadership coach. We're going to focus this segment on how you can become a stronger leader and person by addressing these issues both within and outside of your organization. Sarah, I'd love for you to share more about what you've learned in working with leaders to address sexual violence. Yep, absolutely. So I can tell you a little bit of my journey in founding the Enliven Project, which I started about four, four or five years ago. Um, and I started the Enliven Project with this idea that, that despite the prevalence of sexual violence, there was little attention being paid to it. And, so, and some of that has actually changed over the last, um, the last several years in, in positive ways. Um, but where I started was, if we want leaders and organizations to address the issue of sexual violence, then they need to understand w- like what is it really all about or how, how, what is the impact of sexual violence. So, I, so a lot of my early work and early conversations was simply about educating leaders about the facts. So, for example, you know, uh, research shows in the, in the United States that one out of four women and one out of six men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime or impacted by some form of sexual violence. Um, that, you know, particularly the, the figure around men is something that a lot of people simply don't know. So it was, it was having, it was saying, listen, this is an issue that, this is not a male versus female issue. This is an issue that impacts men, women, and children in the United States and all around the world. The second piece of information that I think helps people get their head around this issue is that being sexually abused or assaulted can have a lasting impact on your physical and mental health. Um, some of the mental health implications are, are uh, I think, better understood. So survivors of sexual violence are more likely to face issues around substance abuse, to face long-term issues with depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. But, they, but there is some recent research that... Um, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study that demonstrates that exposure to sexual violence, particularly as a child, can lead to physical health implications. So things like diabetes, uh, obesity, heart disease, um, that there is a connection between exposure to trauma, particularly sexual trauma as a child, uh, and what your physical health looks like. Um, and finally, you know, this is a crime that, that is 
is extremely expensive. So I, this is something that is more expensive in the United States. It's a crime that is more expensive than drunk driving. It's more expensive than murder. Yet the the organization with the largest budget that was a, was addressing this issue was the budget was about four or five million dollars. I mean, it's the sort of to think about the scale of the most expensive crime that's facing our country and the amount of of resource that was being invested in it. In my mind, it was just shocking. Um, but it, if there were leaders and organ, you know, if the leaders and organizations in the broader social change sector didn't even know that these facts, how could they begin to think about how they were connected to it? So, mm-hmm. so starting with that level of awareness is where I started, and then, you know, and then helping organizations understand that survivors are their clients and customers. Survivors are their employees. Their employees may their employees' health may be impacted by the issue of sexual violence. Um, you know, if this is a topic that you're not willing to take on, there are some serious public public relations and legal implications. This is being played out in institutions of higher education um, in the United States currently. There are 200 higher institutions of higher education that are under investigation by the government for failing to protect survivors and that they may see financial consequences um, for, for failing to live up to their um, to live up to their um, commitments. So, you know, so I think, you know, starting there and then, and then those conversations, by, by simply opening the door to the conversation, I started learning a ton. So, you know, so for example, talking to the leader of a mentoring organization or sort of talking to folks inside of companies who may be mentoring, uh, mentoring other kids is that, you know, typically the way that they'll think about it, they'll say, yes, yes, of course, we care about the issue of sexual violence. We make sure that we screen all of our mentors to make sure that they're not sexual predators. And, and my response to that is, that's great. Well, how do you prepare your mentors to deal with the disclosure of sexual violence? So if you're working with at-risk kids um, and they're finally in a trusting relationship and they feel like they can step forward and talk to you about the issue of sexual violence, are your mentors prepared to do that? Have you thought about whether your mentors might be triggered by that conversation? Do they, do they know what to do and where to refer somebody to? Um, mm-hmm. And... And these, you know, sort of, you know, these conversations is like you know, by opening the door, by sharing the facts, by pointing out just a couple of places where this issue may play out inside your organization, you plant those seeds with people that then begin to grow. And they're not going to grow with everybody, which is why, you know, I have had hundreds of conversations and, and you know, and we'll continue to do so because... Um, but I think particularly with taboo topics, there is a great mm-hmm. power to just shining a little bit of light on the issue, um, giving people some facts, and that helps them overcome the shame and stigma around it. Mm-hmm. This is an excellent structure for people who are trying to think about how they can get started, regardless of the taboo topic that you're addressing, offering this type of structure, looking at the impact, essentially, because if you're trying to gain buy-in, obviously, you want to be able to emphasize the relevance to your community at large and specifically to the organization. Exactly. And, and so I, th- and I think it, it does, if, you know, for any, particularly for taboo topics, it's what, what is this issue really about and who does it impact and how can we present it in a way that re- reduces the barrier to connect with it? And so, so you don't have to be saying, I'm a survivor of sexual violence to care about this issue. 
um, you can simply be caring about it because it impacts lots and lots of people who work for you, lots and lots of your customers or clients, um, and their families and friends. Mm-hmm. And how did this play out for you from there in terms of the process and some of the challenges that you experienced after you really put forth what the impact was that you, you mentioned a quarter of women and one-sixth of men at some point in their lives will be impacted by sexual violence and that that also impacts both physical and mental health and create, can create all kinds of issues like diabetes and obesity, yep. heart disease, and also the financial impact, all of the resources and investments that were going into this, looking at encouraging organizations, as you said, to explore how this is impacting their organization, their employees, their clients, and also what their legal responsibilities are and preparing people within their organization to be able to address the issues. Yeah, so I think, so, so where I went from that, so in, in this, this process of listening both to leaders and organizations that were specifically working on the issue of sexual violence and who were working in other places in the field, is that I realized that there was actually a gap in marketing the issue of sexual violence specifically to men. Um, that there is a lot of work about, uh, about sexual violence as a women's issue. Um, there is, is a lot of work about preventing men from being rapists, though the, the truth is, is that only a very small percentage of men uh, commit sexual crimes. The vast majority are, are, you know, you're much more likely to run into a victim of sexual violence than a perpetrator if you were in a room of 100 men. Um, mm-hmm. But the, you know, but that, that we are not engaging men as allies on the issue of sexual violence and, and appreciating what men are doing um, men like Peter. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, Peter is, is a man who cares deeply about the issue of sexual violence and is making the world a better place because of it. And so, you know, so how do we, how do we create more men like Peter? How do we create more champions and allies, men that feel like they are empowered to do that? So, so my work in the Enliven Project has really started to focus in particularly on messages for men. Like, you don't have to be a superman. Really, you need to just show up learn about this issue, listen and believe survivors, um, and, and try to talk about it with your friends. I mean, it's, you know, how do you talk about sexual violence while you're watching the game? How do you talk about sexual violence while you're watching the latest show on Netflix? Um, you know, and so, so I've been focused through the Enliven Project on building out a set of tools and ultimately a book on how men can engage more deeply on the issue of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. So essentially, at that point, you, identi- you do further research to identify really where the gaps are and where the opportunities are in terms of finding a solution, and then exactly. also how you can provide some kind of guidance and education platform to really enlist people, right. the right people, to help with this mission. Exactly. And, and what's the contribution that I can make, right, either by myself or through my organization? And so I think that it's the same, you know, as you're developing a social responsibility strategy as a company, it's what are the issues that matter to me? What are the issues that I care about? What's happening in the field? And then what is the unique contribution that I can make? Um, with, you know, sort of with the skills network experience that I have. And, you know, and, you know, if you're in a for-profit company really thinking about, uh, you know, and, and how can that be, have some alignment with what my bottom line is. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I, I believe that there's actually a number of companies that could be taking a stand on more taboo topics and get really good um, recognition around it because there are, you know, there are a few other players. Everybody, everybody invests in education. Few companies invest in taboo topics. And so when they do, um, there's, you know, I think the added benefit of really being able to make a significant difference faster, particularly if you, if you go through the process that, as I did with the Enliven Project of understanding what the issue is, focusing in on, on the, the quote, truth about it um, in a neutral way, and then, and then figuring out, you know, where, where you can make a contribution that's going to make a difference to do something that nobody else is doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So the last part of this is looking at yourself as an individual and what your unique contribution will be, looking at what the organization's unique contribution can be and what platform they can offer that will be have multiple benefits, including bottom line benefits. Exactly. Thank you so much, Sarah. This is an excellent outline of a process that I think will help a lot of people to get started. Peter, <laughs> coming back to you. What can you share about your work with leaders to address taboo topics? And I want to build off of, thank you, Hemda, I want to build off of a couple things that Sarah said uh, and really underscore them because they're very powerful points. Um, I got involved, going back to the lifeline idea, I got involved um, with the sexual abuse um, issue. Uh, the tobacco issue was already there for me. The sexual abuse issue came from literally coaching a few dozen men and women who had been sexually abused. Um, and so to her point that this is not, uh, this is, uh, crosses genders is, is a very powerful one. And as I was hearing those stories in my work as a leadership development coach, which is the other half of my work uh, from youth advocacy, um, I was hearing it from men and women and how it had impacted them. So it moved me toward um, doing what I could to help in terms of that area. And I want to, I really want to uh, stress something. Uh, Sarah told her truth when she was 11 years old. Um, as adults, we have a tendency to ignore what young people say, and that's criminal. Young people and the advocacy and the intelligence that they show in terms of learning from and moving toward what they've done um, informs us as adults and, and, and the fact that we are not listening in the way we need to to young people is a huge mistake for our, for our world. And the example I have of that before I, before I uh, move into a, a couple examples uh, from my work, um, in, when I was doing youth advocacy work uh, around uh, tobacco, uh, there was, a, there was a, a young girl, 11 years old, um, all of the adults had presented to the town council in my town about getting rid of cigarette machines in our town. And all of us got up and presented our credentials and things. And then this girl stood there and looked at the, at the, um, at the town council and said, those products are killing my friends. They're killing my family. They're killing my loved ones. How can you possibly keep cigarette machines that anybody of any age can, can access? And I'm standing there and she, and they said this, the town council, she swayed the group, 11 years old. People five times her age were making their case, didn't make an impact. She stood there, she told her truth, and, and the town council voted uh, to get rid of all the, uh, all the cigarette machines in our, in, our, in our town. Now, this was 35 years ago. It stays with me to this day. We need to listen to our kids. And that young lady told the truth and, uh, and moved the conversation forward. Uh, I want to I talk in terms of um, the lifeline uh, as it relates to um, 
uh, an individual that I was working with in a group of individuals, um, and uh, he told his lifeline story. And in it, he explained that when he um, was a teenager, he was in his school. It was in a, a diff difficult things were happening in his country, uh, and a, a group of people came into the school, and one person put a gun to his head and was going to kill him. The person with the gun was shot by a security guard. They got him out of the out of the school. He and his family got into a car with help from neighbors and others. They got out of that country and uh, into safety. He told this story to us, and uh, he said it was the first time he had ever told that story to anyone other than his family. And his colleagues in his corporation said to him, you've got to tell that story as part of your story about a leader because this is an individual who was so into team so into people helping each other and that was a primary reason from that significant event in his life and his colleagues were encouraging him to tell that story he was very reluctant to do it he said i don't want people to think i'm a martyr i don't want people to whatever and they said please uh please tell that story he he slept on it uh, he made the decision to do it and um, explained in very, very briefly to, his, uh, to the people that, that he led a, lot, a large number of people. He was a very senior leader. He told them that story. He said it changed his life as a leader. Um, he was able to tell us uh, in the group because we were working on an ongoing basis. Um, he said they were drawn to him. They, it, he, they understood it. Um, and so I've, I've seen a lot of pe people need to tell their story. He needed to tell his story and his colleagues uh, uh, um, allowed him the, the space to do that. I've had, I, I had a doctor that I worked with who uh, was very pro-children and um, there were policies going on in the hospital system in which he worked and he went to the leader of that hospital system and said, if these policies continue, I'm going to leave. This is not treating our young people the way they needed to. He put his career on the line and his reputation on the line um, because of his passion for young people, which is why he went into medicine. Um, it led to some very, very uh, serious conversations, um, and he carried the day in terms of that work. Um, I, uh, another example in terms of somebody um, uh, as a leader – um, impacting the people around them. There is an individual who lives in the Middle East, um, and he went to his corporation about doing some efforts that combined uh, entities within different countries who hate each other. Um, and the leaders of his corporation said, there's no way we can do that. He carried the day. He is now leading efforts uh, in that part of the world that are starting to create relationships between multiple company, m multiple countries um, that move things ahead. Telling your story as a leader in a transparent way can impact a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. So we have a couple of additional messages coming out of this segment. Importantly, listen to your kids as Peter and Sarah so beautifully illustrated. And as Peter just added, telling your personal compelling story really strengthens your ability and impact as a leader. We're going to go to a quick commercial when we return, Peter and Sarah will offer resources to support you in being a peak performing person, contributing to the common good, and leading yourself and others through sexual violence and tobacco use. Stay tuned to learn more.
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Imagine you hired a designer to redo your kitchen. Working with an expert to meet your needs was such a high. You're enjoying the new feature so much that you're waking up early to write the book that's been in your head for five years. The raised Caesar stone countertop and cushioned back stool are your writer's desk. With this comes the realization that all of the rooms in your home need to be redone to match the level of your kitchen. This scenario demonstrates my approach to executive and lifestyle coaching. It involves understanding what compatibility means to you at different times in relationships, career, nutrition, and other quality of life areas. It's also about elevating your game personally and professionally. Given my multidisciplinary expertise, we can address a range of needs that are critical to your fulfillment and success. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, Managing Director of Life and Career Choices, a global executive coaching and concierge practice. Learn more about my services and contact me through lifeandcareerchoices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790 or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. Welcome back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, speaking with two leadership and social change experts, Sarah Bolieu and Peter Pritchard. We talked about how addressing taboo realities strengthens your ability as a leader. Peter and Sarah are going to leave us with valuable resources that can support you in addressing sexual violence and tobacco use. So, Peter, we'll start with you. Excellent. Thank you. And I, again, I want to segue from uh, something that, that Sarah said. Um, as you're listening to this, the, uh, a motivation for doing this is there are costs involved, financial costs, but also significant numbers of people in the organizations that you lead or people that you know um, that are, uh, uh, have, are dealing with sexual abuse or tobacco products. The figure for me in terms of the tobacco industry is if current um, trends continue. One billion people will die from tobacco-related illnesses this century. One billion. So I created the website Make Big Tobacco Unprofitable uh, as a way of really energizing individuals to be involved in the tobacco wars. It's a war. The tobacco industry will do everything they can to remain profitable, and the way to do that is to create candy-flavored cigarettes, cigars, um, e-cigarettes to get young people started so that they will then uh, either continue on those products or transition to uh, cigarettes and, and, and other tobacco products. So those are, those are the numbers, the costs that are related to that. In terms of what you can do, every individual, a lot of times in people that I work with who want to work for the common good, their thought is, well, what can I do? I'm only a X. 
And um, on, on Make Big Tobacco Unprofitable, there are dozens of examples of competencies and skills and actions people can take, starting with supporting the, the anti-tobacco organizations. There are 23 of them on that website you can support, two very specific things you can do. And I really want to give uh, a credibility to a whole country who is behind the mission, and it's the country of Australia. Australia has made a, a concerted effort to lessen the deaths of, by tobacco through the use of tobacco products by their young people. And the way they have done it, all of this is on the, on the website in terms of what you can do as individuals in your, in your country or your state or your county or your province. What they have done is they've raised the taxes, they have raised the age for using uh, these products, and they have um, put packaging on the cigarettes that is very descriptive in terms of what uh, those products will do to people. Those three efforts, raising the age, raising the cost of tobacco products, which lessens the number of young people who can do that, and, and using plain packaging, which takes away the advantage of all of the marketing that has been done around tobacco. The country of Australia has significantly lessened the use of tobacco by young people through those measures. Make Big Tobacco Unprofitable provides a number of resources for you in terms of doing that. The sister website, workforthecommongood.com, has uh, significant hundreds of resources for those of you who are listening to this and are thinking, well, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if my, my lifeline would, would move me in the direction of tobacco products or sexual assault, but I do have a strong interest in something else. Um, I've created Work for the Common Good so that regular individuals can start to identify, the, the site helps you understand how to identify uh, organizations that might be in sync with, with, your, with your passion, um, what are the competencies that you can, can uh, offer to, in, to these organizations, how do you approach them strategies for job search, and, and also uh, strategies in terms of how to be a resilient and peak-performing leader. A couple thoughts in terms of that. Peak-performing leaders are self-aware. I've already shared with you Dan Goldman's work on emotional intelligence. There's a significant body of uh, information out there uh, in terms of how to do that. Peak-performing leaders also, I've done a lot of work around what motivates people, uh, people's motives. There are two kinds of motives. There's personalized power. There are two kinds of power motives, personalized and socialized. People who are motivated to be socialized in the use of their power want to help other people be strong. Those that are motivated and energized by personal power want to make themselves feel strong and others feel less strong. So on that site, Work for the Common Good, I outline how individuals can be common good leaders that, can, that embrace strengthening other people versus making them look uh, weaker in, in, to the advantage of the particular leader. Another thing that I speak to is the importance of resilience. Sarah is resilient. She went through what she went through uh, as a very young girl, and she is, her strength is, has been shared on this, on this program. Individuals who are resilient, there's a whole chapter uh, on uh, Work for the Common Good about how to be resilient. The, uh, a base definition of resilience is when bad stuff happens to you. I alluded to this in the first couple minutes of this program. When bad things happen to you, and bad things happen to all of us, it's reality. Um, how do how how do you respond to that? Do you become a victim and end up uh, having a lesser life, or do you um, uh, move forward from it in a positive way, in the way that Sarah has, uh, based on her story? So, in work for the common good, there's information in terms of how to be a resilient leader, how to be a peak performing leader. 
Um, I use uh, I use research on uh, world class athletes in terms of how world class athletes uh, overcome the the fact that every day in their practicing they fail. What do world class athletes do? What is their mental way of handling things? I've got a chapter in there based on the research uh, by Charles Garfield and his work with Olympic level athletes in terms of how you as a leader can move forward in a way that is most uh, effective in impacting uh, other people. Those two resources are designed to um, assist you in around the theme that we're talking about. Taboo topics, addressing them as a leader or an individual, or anything that you're passionate about, being able to make it happen. And I wrote two novels uh, about both of these topics, uh, uh, Dawn of Hope and uh, Dawn of the Tobacco Wars. Both those novels speak to a young teenager who changes the lives of millions of individuals through her strength as she addresses both of those issues. Thank you, Peter. I have a question on behalf of parents. What advice would you give parents who are struggling with addressing the issue of tobacco use with their kids? Uh, a primary a thing that, that, that they can do, it's, it's very simple, is if they are smokers themselves, stop. Um, anybody who's a parent who smokes and is talking to their students, uh, excuse me, to their children about not smoking has zero credibility. So Hemda, the first thing they can do um, is stop smoking, and the second, they, and the second thing they can do um, is look for help. Uh, there are dozens of resources on uh, Make Big Tobacco Unprofitable, organizations that help uh, parents, help children understand how to have the kinds of conversations that are necessary. There's some f- very compelling work that's, that's been done um, uh, with, the, with the, the organizations that are on that site. Um, be real with your kids. Talk to them be involved and understand the social media that's impacting them in a way that allows them to move forward as smoke-free uh, individuals and help them become some of the most powerful work that's being done in the schools um, is where leaders, young people themselves, are advocating for no use of tobacco and young people listen to their leaders uh, who are their same age and have credibility. Excellent. So setting a, a good example, also looking to resources that can help you to communicate getting into the habit of having honest communications with your kids and also engaging the school system in the process. Absolutely. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Sarah, I'd love for you to share about the type of support you've made available through the enlivenproject.com. Yeah, great. So the enlivenproject.com is my website. There's also an associated Facebook page, um, which is also under the name The Enliven Project, where I share a number of tools to help individuals have comfortable conversations about the issue of sexual violence and other taboo topics. So I also write, uh, write and share a bit about nonprofit leadership, leadership in general, um, parenting, work-life balance, um, you know, sort of things where a kind of dose of truth-telling might do us all some good. Um, but if you go to the enlivenprojects.com, what you'll find is is a number of really shareable, uh, friendly tools uh, that help uh, talk about the issue of sexual violence, as we had talked about before. So sort of simply about the prevalence, about its impact, about men and sexual violence, um, breaking down those myths. And and by sharing something like this, whether it's on your Facebook page or on Twitter or, um, you know, with people in your network or inside your organization, um, it also, it, it, it's opening the door to say, if you need to talk to me about this issue, it's okay by me. Um, I'm going to be comfortable. A lot of the, the, the information about sexual violence um, out there currently is 
polarizing. It's angry. It's um, it's, it's sort of the it's like the driving by a car wreck type of uh, feel to it. And what I share through the Enliven Project is really how do you make this issue feel accessible to people and make people feel empowered to do it. So I do that through both mm-hmm. a series of graphics um, that again you can can download and share, as well as regular blog posts. So in addition to writing on the Enliven Project, I write for the Good Men Project. I write for Huffington Post. I write, you know, I've written a, a series of op-eds um, on a variety of topics ranging from how do you date a sexual assault survivor? How do you support a sexual assault survivor through childbirth? Those are really thinking about um, regardless of what stage of life you're in, regardless of the kind of organization or the kind of work you do, there is a way to, there is a way to connect to the issue of sexual violence that you can find on the Enliven Project. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, also on the topic of parenting, is there any advice that you can give to a parent if their child comes to them and tells them that they've been a victim of sexual violence? Uh, one is believe them. So I think the most important thing that you can do is to believe them um, and to let them know it's not their fault. So if, if the child is coming to tell, has, has disclosed sexual violence to to you as a parent or as a trusted adult in their life, know that they may have been threatened, that they may have been told that it's their fault. And so that that first reaction that you have, no matter how you're feeling inside, like you might feel like you want to go out and kill this person. You might feel like you're going to just go throw up because it's so horrible. Just look at that child and say, I believe you and it's not your fault. And then go do what you need to do. Um, calm yourself down, take care of yourself, and and seek professional help right away, not just for the child, but for yourself. Mm-hmm. So really emphasizing that you're there to be a support and that you believe what they say. And yep. of course, making sure that you get the support that you need as a parent. Exactly. We have just about a minute left. Is there any other important advice that you would like to share? I... I think that it's just ground yourself in your own truth. Whatever your truth is, somebody else shares that truth with you and, and give, give the other people in the world the gift of your truth. Mm -hmm. I love that message. Empowering ourselves and grounding ourselves to our truths and also giving that as a gift to other people in our personal lives and also in our professional lives. Thank you so much both you and Peter. Thank you, Hamda. Thank you, Thank you, Sarah. Mm -hmm. So thank you both for sharing such profound personal and professional experiences. I really trust that these stories will encourage listeners to use the resources you've shared in tackling both tobacco use and sexual violence head-on and any other taboo challenge that you're experiencing. So we'd like to invite you to learn more about these issues by reading Peter's books, Dawn of Hope and Dawn of the Tobacco Wars, the sequel to Dawn of Hope. You can purchase both books through Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Also visit Peter's website, workforthecommongood.com and makebigtobaccounprofitable.com. The invaluable resources Sarah has described are available through her website, theenlivenproject.com. Sarah also shares information and insights through Twitter and invites you to follow her at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, last name B-E-A-U-L-I-E-U. If you have unanswered questions from today's episode, please email them to me at hosthemda at gmail.com. 
We'll post responses, which you can access if you follow me on Twitter and like us on Facebook at Turn the Page Radio. Until next week, remember to make the grass greener where you are. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, inviting you to turn the page. Thank you for tuning in to our program. Turn the Page can be heard live every Friday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week's show, enjoy your weekend and make one change in your life before then.